Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Home. The word may have different meanings for many of us. It could be a physical place, a person, a feeling, even a memory. Coming up, we'll look at home in the context of hometown and hear from Atlanta muralist George F. Baker III. Also known as GFB3, Baker's warm, playful style can be seen in work all over our city, and his pieces often reflect his deep love of Atlanta. And later this hour, Max Paxton, decluttering expert and host of PBS's Legacy List, teaches us a new way to look at the physical things that end up in our attics and garages. But first, a new immersive exhibition exploring themes of home is now on view at the Reeves House, the new visual art center for the Woodstock and Metro Atlanta communities. The group show, called Reconstructing Home, is curated by Nicole Lample, and she recently joined City Lights executive producer and host Lois Reitzis, along with Karen Anderson Singer, the artist behind Tiny Doors ATL. They began their conversation with Nicole explaining how the new Reeves House Center came to be. The project has been in the works for for quite some time, probably over a decade now, but we have officially opened up to the public as of May 14th, which was our grand opening for this current exhibition. And yeah, we're just so excited to be finally open to the public after kind of a a long ongoing project that preceded my time here in, in this position. Now, why did Reeves House want to focus on the idea of home for the inaugural exhibition? That's a great question. So the title of the exhibition is Reconstructing Home, and there were several kind of inspirations behind that choice. The first being the history and origins of the Reeves house itself. We had initially intended to renovate an existing historical structure. It was a family home occupied by the Reeves family that was built in 1897. But unfortunately, mid-construction, we discovered that it was structurally unsound. So we ended up having to reconstruct this family home. So the title itself pays homage to that sort of history. And also just as a particularly poignant time to talk about the theme of home in a time when over the course of the past year, all of us have had to reinvent and reconstruct our homes to fulfill a variety of purposes that they were not previously used for, you know, as our kids' schools, our offices, our gyms, our art studios, basically everything. So it just seemed like a particularly good time to explore this this concept more in depth. I noticed the artists featured in this show are from different parts of the country. Why did Reeves House open submissions to artists outside of Georgia? So it is 19 artists. The majority of them are regionally in the Southeast. There were a couple of outliers that basically I just fell in love with their work and thought it was a really great fit for the show. But it was not an open call for this opening exhibit. It was just a lot of research and and digging around on my part to find the, the works that kind of best fit the show. But I think there's only maybe three artists that fall outside of the Southeast region. Okay, so this was very intentional 
curating rather than an open call, as you explain. Correct. Correct. Yeah, it was very sort of carefully selected and very intentionally a wide variety of media. So we have everything from, you know, a chair made completely out of paper to keys cast in resin to, you know, an audio piece that you get to pick up and listen to, you know, one of the artist's grandmother's recipe on a rotary phone. (laughs) I wanted to display a really wide variety. So there was going to be something for everybody. And I think people have really enjoyed that. What can you tell us about the interactive elements of this show? I think interaction is such an important part of exhibitions because I think it really invites people to feel a a deeper connection to the show. So as far as the interactive elements, the first thing you see when you walk into the exhibition space is this sort of sunny yellow wall. And it's kind of a recreation of a little family room. So we have the armchair made completely out of paper with the side table and a lamp. And that's by artist Sarah Farrington from South Carolina. She even goes so far as to make the light switch and like the electrical outlet out of paper. And Underneath it is a rug, and then on the wall behind it is a variety of sort of a gallery wall of family photos that have been digitally altered. And then there are these two very large photographs of the artist Amber Eckersley's grandmother's biscuit bowl. And so the cool interactive element with that is right beneath that is a little end table with a pink rotary phone on it. And when you pick up the phone, you get to hear her grandmother explaining her biscuit recipe. So it's kind of that element of connecting the image with this like very specific memory, being able to hear the grandmother herself kind of explain it. There is also a piece by Macy Lay, who's an Atlanta artist who took an antique 50s and 60s P.O. box and she sized the video to fit perfectly within those those little boxes. So you can kind of peer in and see people going on about their everyday lives, but the mailboxes themselves open and close. So people love to kind of like play around in there and peek in there. And sometimes the doors end up getting closed. And yeah, I think... That as well as Ashton Bird's piece, which was custom created and built in the space the weekend before the opening of the show. And it utilized barn wood from an old barn that we had torn down in the back of the house. Karen, you've been a guest on City Lights before. It's great to talk with you again. Always an honor. Thanks, Lois. For those who are not familiar with your work, Karen is the founder of Tiny Doors ATL, an Atlanta-based art project which creates seven-inch door sculptures throughout the city and displays them in unexpected settings, almost hidden places. I was wondering during the pandemic, as people spent time outside. Did you receive feedback from more Atlantans who discovered your hidden doors? It was such an unexpected shift. Before I put a door in any location, I get to know that location super well. They're all put in by invitation. So, you know, for instance, in a neighborhood, if I'm talking to the representatives of the neighborhood, we talk about who visits that door and why and what they're doing when they're there. And When the pandemic hit, everything about every location changed so much that some of them saw five times as many people and some saw nobody. Some were in the front of theaters that had no one visiting at the time. So it really changed the nature of the way that my work is perceived by a lot. And what did you hear from folks? Did anyone email you or contact you directly? Well, people were emailing because they wanted to do something new that was safe. And more often than not, I think maybe I don't hear from people because they just go to the map and they go take it upon themselves to visit the doors. But, you know, on average, the map got a certain number of views every year, but it went up by almost 100,000 views last year. Oh, my. So people were, yeah, it was really unexpected. I checked it recently and my, you know, I just couldn't believe it. Oh, my goodness. Because I'm noticing that people are coming 
and they don't even email. They know where to go. They go to my Instagram, they click to the map, and then they just go explore. And that to me is the dream. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) Go experience. So go to the Instagram to find the map. Yeah, you can start at Instagram, Tiny Doors ATL, or you can go to tinydoorsatl.com and there is definitely a very clear place to click on the map. And there's a Google map there where if you click that, it will start where you are and show you the nearest doors. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights, is speaking with Nicole Lample. She's the Director of Visual Arts at the new Reeves House, part of Woodstock Arts, formerly known as Elm Street Cultural Arts Village. We're also talking with Karen Anderson Singer, the artist known as Tiny Doors ATL. And I've got to tell you, when you see these tiny doors, you'll smile. I mean, it's such a feeling of discovery and, you know, it's uplifting to see these little places. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Because of that element of surprise, which of your tiny doors is on display in this show? In this show, I did something that I have never done before. So the piece is called All Are Welcome, and it is a direct reflection of, it's almost a portrait of Tiny Door 2, which is the rainbow door on the belt line. It's, I think, the most popular of my pieces, and it's certainly one of the oldest. And this door that you're seeing, All Are Welcome, the piece that's in the gallery show, is how I want that door to look, but it never looks that way for more than five minutes because the belt line has its way with it. So <laughs> it was nice to get it clean and shiny and have it stay that way. But it really changed meaning for me. I started working on it before the pandemic and finished after it had started. And when Nicole mentioned home and rethinking and recoloring, restructuring home for this show, this piece felt like such a great fit because I feel at home when I'm out working on my pieces. I have spent nearly a hundred hours in front of just the rainbow door over the course of six years, touching it up, taking care of it, repainting. It is a home to me to sit there, to talk to people on the Beltline and to work on this piece. And I couldn't go, it wasn't safe. And so I had to just leave it alone Hmm. for an entire year. And it was honestly devastating to watch it slowly get tagged into oblivion. But I had this version. I had this piece that I had already started in the studio and it took on a whole new meaning and it brought that home to me. And so when she mentioned home as the theme for this, I really wanted to share that. It might be for other people a fun visitor attraction, but to me that door, and especially as a queer artist, the rainbow and maintaining that rainbow is important to me. And it is a home. That is very powerful. Nicole, would you talk about those three themes Karen mentioned, the ideas explored in the exhibition, recalling, removing, recoloring? How do those ideas appear in some of the artists' installations? So the three themes are sort of sub-themes of the exhibition and the different approaches that people have taken sort of thematically. When we're talking about recalling, it's about home as defined by memories, but also the inherent unreliability uh, with memories and how they kind of start to fade or degrade over time. There is also the theme of recoloring which is where Karen's amazing piece falls into thematically. And this is this idea of home as defined by the ways in which our present selves can reimagine or literally recolor the narratives of our past. So Karen's piece fits beautifully in this theme. It deals with very bright colors, but more so than that, it's a space that welcomes everybody. There's a sign that says all are welcome. And so that's kind of in, in pretty stark contrast to the last theme, which is removing. So this is where home is defined as a space that we no longer occupy or possess. And that's whether it's a voluntary move or 
involuntary. In Kyung Chun's installations look like transparent homes with colorful paintings inside. What does that symbolize? Sure. Um, so In Kyung Chun uh, deals with the theme of home a lot in her work. So she was a perfect artist to select for this show. So she does have a series of these clear plexiglass homes that contain tiny little hand-drawn pictures, essentially. And the idea behind that is as a person who had immigrated from South Korea, she really struggled with feeling like she was welcome or that she belonged in a lot of spaces. And her intention here was to create a space that was actually interestingly sort of similar to Karen's piece, Open to All, a place where there was transparency, where everybody could access the pieces. And she's kind of just generally juxtaposing the safety and stability of this concept of home with the vulnerability in being an immigrant in contemporary America. And so she's really consciously creating these intimate spaces that are really accessible. And the way that these pieces are hung together in this kind of loose grid almost starts to suggest a neighborhood and the small paintings that are enclosed in them really invite closer looking, which just serves to deepen that sense of intimacy and inclusion. And I think ultimately it's kind of like in the eyes of the artist, a house really only becomes a home when art lives in it as well. I'm curious for both of you, how has the pandemic changed the way you interpret home? I think that for me, the interpretation of home shifted in a way that I didn't expect. I started by having an art studio at home. I moved the studio to Atlantic Station during the pandemic. I made myself at home here in the studio too, but I realized that the spaces that I missed were also home for me. The spaces in front of my public work felt like home and I missed them. And I never would have called them home before. But now that I realize what they mean to me, I would say that the spaces in front of my art become a home also. And that was something that really shifted how I perceive home. Yeah. So for me, I think it was just the way that my space had to serve so many different purposes. And I think that was kind of the biggest adjustment of realizing how many things we do outside of our homes and how much that comes to kind of define our, our day to day. And so for me, it, it was a little bit challenging just to have to kind of condense my whole life into, into a, a house, but at the same time, deepening that feeling of home and connection to place and space. Curator Nicole Lample, artist Karen Anderson Singer, and City Lights executive producer and host Lois Reitzes. The Reconstructing Home exhibit is on view at the new Reeves House now through July 4th. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Over the last several years, Atlanta has attracted a reputation as home to some of the best murals in our country. So when we're commuting around in our equally famous traffic, at least we're able to gaze upon a bounty of incredible art. Quickly becoming woven into Atlanta's scenery is the art of muralist George F. Baker III, also known as GFB3. His work employs themes of community and togetherness combined with a fun, childlike spirit. George F. Baker III joins us now via Zoom. George, welcome to City Lights. 
Hey, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we're very happy to have you with us. I'm a great fan of your playful style and the warmth and the love that your art exudes. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much. I, I think that's one of the first times anybody has ever said that love is, is really at the center of a lot of my work. And, and it definitely is. And I think for me, the way that I got to that point was I feel like just the way that I was raised. Like I was really raised with just seeing the beauty in, in everything, especially people. People are some of the, the main inspirations behind why I do what I do, because I love when they just bring their authentic childlike selves out to the forefront. So, yeah. And your work has become such a fun part of our Atlanta landscape. Can you tell me a little more about your connection to Atlanta and how you landed here? Because this is not your birth home, right? No, not my birth home at all. I've been, well, I was actually born in Omaha, Nebraska, raised in Detroit for a little bit, Savannah, Hilton Head Island, and then I got to Atlanta in 2003. I've been here ever since. This is now, in my eyes, my forever home. I don't really want to be anywhere else. Atlanta has has just done so much for me and has really opened my eyes to just how wonderful of a place that it is because it is such a, it is a big city, but I feel like it really has a very small city feel. I always like to tell people this is the place where everybody knows everybody and we're mm-hmm. two steps away from Keisha Bottoms. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Nice. Not Kevin Bacon. No, Keisha no, not, Bottoms. Yeah, Keisha Bottoms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. Atlanta is just a connection of a bunch of small communities that end up making this beautiful city. And I know your most recent work went up in Adair Park, an area of town that is finally getting some of the attention that is well overdue and that it deserves. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that piece? It's the jewel of Atlanta, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It is the jewel of Atlanta. And in my eyes, I feel like that is exactly what a dare park is. It is a place, like you said, that hasn't really gotten as much shine and, and spotlight when it comes to the neighborhoods of Atlanta, but it has such a beautiful history. It has such welcoming people. And I think for me personally, having lived in a dare park, having lived over in the West End, one of my biggest gripes was that there wasn't as much artwork in the West End and in Adair Park. And so as soon as this opportunity came across my docket, the first place that I chose was Adair Park, specifically Adair Park too, because I've been in that park before. I've played basketball. I've gotten dunked on because I'm not good at basketball at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've ran around that park. I've had picnics there and it just always seemed like it's this one special spot in Atlanta, in Adair Park, that everybody that is there in that community frequents. And I wanted to be able to amplify the beauty that was already there. You know, like I feel like all the murals that I do, they're not meant to beautify a place. Not at all. They're meant to amplify the beauty that is already there. And the beauty that was in Adair Park was that it's the jewel and it just needed a wall piece to be able to to state that. And the piece has a bunch of your signature characters on Mm -hmm. it, some being (laughs) sporty, playing tennis and biking. And then there's one little guy. Is he playing hide and seek? He's kind of sticking out behind a tree. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Yep. Playing hide and seek, of course, you know. (laughs) I love it. I like that you caught that. (laughs) It's just great. I know that that was a partnership and sponsored through Safe Auto. And Mm -hmm. that kind of made me wonder, how do you balance your creative freedom with the need to still put food on the table? Oh, man. I feel like one of the most powerful things that you can have as, as an artist or entrepreneur, really just as a person, is a powerful no. And, and when it comes to how I, how I go about creating things that, that have like money attached to them or our sponsorships or stakeholders is by being okay with saying no to a project at any time. If I feel like it's kind of drifting a little bit too far away from it being an intentional creative piece. And so luckily with this piece with Safe Auto, they immediately were just like, no, we just want to work with an artist in Atlanta and 
we want that artist to be able to create whatever that they want. And I was surprised for one. I was like, are you, are you sure? Okay. <laughs> I'm like, you want me to add a car? Like, <laughs> and they said, no, just do whatever you want and do whatever feels right to you because you, you know this community a lot better than we do. You know what the, the wants and needs are for wall art way more than, than we do. And we trust your, your vision. So I just look to work with people that trust my vision and that I can also in turn trust their vision. I, I definitely just want to thank the, the company Muros for even helping to initiate a lot of that uh, Safe Auto project. You know, I appreciate them so much for having the belief in me to, to activate this project and to be the, the best person to pull this off. So I have to give my love to them. That's great. Well, I think the right people have been drawn to you. Oh. I want to talk about some of your other pieces as well, just to give everyone who might be unfamiliar a better idea of who you are. And when I talk about your warmth, here's the title of some of George's pieces, okay? Make friends. Everyone has a seat here. In this together. Be you, spread good. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, you have a piece it. that's uh, titled Marta. Can you talk a little bit about the elements that you put in there? That was a wonderful project that I did with Marta. And I was just incredibly happy as soon as they picked me for the project because I've ridden Marta all my life. I, I'm like, I went to Georgia State. I was a commuter student for my first couple of years when I had to take two hour bus, train trips to uh, Georgia State. And so I just know about the value of MARTA for the specific project. They had all these like dividers, these stone dividers that would kind of divide the passengers, you know, from the buses for safety purposes. But um, I wanted to figure out a way to kind of make that a creative and fun interactive piece. So, you know, I put all these different legs that are on all the stone tablets and I wanted people to kind of interact with them, possibly be able to see the beauty in the fact that Marta is a way for you to connect with all these different types of people that are coming from all these different types of places. And at the end of the day that we're all just trying to to get better. We just happen to be doing that together and we should acknowledge that. So if you're just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, talking to illustrator and muralist George F. Baker III. George, you have a multitude of murals up around Atlanta and other cities, but there's one recent project I find particularly interesting. It's the rooftop of the Peachtree Center building. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Can you describe that piece? Oh, man. It's an optical illusion. Yeah, that was a project I was assisting on with the artist 1010. And his style is basically using all of these like different kind of shapes and circles and winding curves to kind of create these optical illusions of like immense voids. And having the opportunity to work with him on that rooftop, which was wild in itself because I'm incredibly afraid of heights. Oh, man. Yeah, even, yeah. Even with the work that I do, I may seem fearless getting up there, but know that my knees are shaking. Oh, man. And, and so being up there with him and seeing how calm he was on like, yeah, we're just going to do something really funky up here. And we definitely achieved that. Even had to jump down or descend down to a lower part of the building to paint one last area of the piece. You know, once again... I was definitely afraid the whole entire time. I don't know if he noticed that, but <laughs> but yeah, I'm like, if anything, I felt, I feel like one of the most beautiful parts of it, not only it being an optical illusion, is the fact that it totally transforms the skyline. Mm. <laughs> and I feel like that's one of the most beautiful things about about doing public art. Like you really have an opportunity to totally transform a place with just paint. <laughs> you know, painting a little bit of can do. And then seeing that on the Atlanta magazines, you know, cover, it was, it was such an amazing experience and so happy I was able to do that. It's an amazing piece that looks like it has so much depth to it. And I, I just find it hard to believe that it's on a flat surface. It's crazy <laughs> looking. I love it. Don't fall into it. Oh, though. no. <laughs> Not a fan of heights either. No way. <laughs> 
So you mentioned the Atlanta Magazine cover, but that's not the only time your work has been featured as the cover art, right? You designed the 2020 Best of Atlanta cover. Can you tell us a little bit about the elements that you put into that piece? Yeah, that was such a fun project. Like, I'm just a huge fan of Atlanta. And and like you said earlier, like, the beautiful thing about Atlanta is that it really is all these separate individual subgroups that are in Atlanta that overlap each other, sometimes in, in you know, good ways and in clean ways, and sometimes in less clean ways. Atlanta is a, a beautiful tapestry. And I wanted to be able to illustrate that with that piece by like putting in things like Supremo, which is one of my favorite taco spots in Atlanta, giving some shout outs to the Braves. And, <laughs> and sometimes they're, uh, I guess the best way to put it is the struggle of a fandom. <laughs> <That's> so kind. <laughs> hey, trust me, I understand. You know, even giving some shots out to the uh, Starlight, the fact that, you know, we have Run the Jewels here with Killer Mike and, you know, all of their success. Even giving some uh, love out to one of my favorite mural artists in Atlanta, Yo-Yo Farrell. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. What yeah, a talent. just amazing artist, incredible artist. And even loving some things like the uh, Atlanta United. I have to give them all of the the love and the adoration because they made me enjoy soccer. And I'm like a full Atlanta United head now. And I never thought I would ever <laughs> enjoy soccer as much as I do now. You mentioned Killer Mike being incorporated into your Best of Atlanta cover. You also got to collaborate via the Adult Swim piece, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, it still, honestly, it still gives me chills. Understandably. It, it meant a lot to me. Definitely meant a lot to me to work on that project with him. Yeah. So for those who are unfamiliar, it is a beautiful, large piece that basically just has Killer Mike's infamous now quote from last mm-hmm. summer. We must plot, we must plan, we must strategize, organize, and mobilize. And to have gotten to be a part of commemorating that, that must be a lovely feeling. Yeah, it was a beautiful feeling because it's something that I truly do believe, like that we must not only, you know, do all of those things that are stated in the quote, but we have to figure out and remember that it's going to take a lot of people from different backgrounds, from, you know, different professions to be able to get us to go in the, in the right direction. Like we have to make sure that we're considering everybody in plans for like elevation, because if your idea of lifting up people only includes a certain amount of people and doesn't include everybody in, in the room to actually create it, you're leaving people out. It's not true elevation. And so being able to visualize that with this project was gorgeous. And then also it was just, it was a dream come true for me. Like I've grown up watching Cartoon Network. I've grown up watching Adult Swim. And to be able to not only work with them and have these billboards out in Atlanta and LA and New York, but also to have the actual animation team take my work and fully animate the project and put it on TV. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm like, there's a clip of me on my on my Instagram, like catching it in real time with my mom. Aww. And it wasn't a planned thing at all. She literally came down there that day. It was something like unplanned. She flew all the way down from like Detroit. Then I got the call from Adult Swim that they'll be airing that. And then we got to watch it together. And I'm just crying tears of joy because for her, she was just like, you know, this really made all of the no's worth it. Mm. Even now I'm getting... I'm getting like tearful. It's a big Uh, deal. It was a moment that crystallized everything for me. Like I already have a good belief in myself, just like anybody else. I struggle with thinking that I can do this, you know, and seeing that on TV, seeing a dream realized in real time was, it gave me another battery pack to continue on doing what I do. Right on. And you mentioned having always been a fan of Adult Swim, and I can see those influences in your work. What were some of your favorite cartoons that you used to watch? Oh, oh man, that's a long list. Uh, <laughs> Samurai Jack, Dexter's Laboratory, of course, you know, Dragon Ball Z, Pokemon. Oh, man. Nice. SWAT Cats, which is a very random 
niche cartoon. If it was a cartoon in the 90s and in the early 2000s, just know I watched it. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I also see influences, though, from older generations. Are you familiar with the Schoolhouse Rock series? Yes, I am. Man, I Mm -hmm. see that in your work. (laughs) Yes, I used to watch that, too, when I was younger. That would come on uh, some of the like news channels before the actual news would start, I would see episodes of Schoolhouse Rock as a kid. That's awesome. Yeah. Learn how a bill becomes a law. (laughs) I'm only a bill and I'm sitting on Capitol Hill. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You are also the creative director of Foster Studio Collective. Can you speak a little to that? Yeah. Foster in itself is really my personal studio to kind of create different Things are events that kind of help to bring out the childlike nature in people. So this ranges from something as small as like stickers or something as large as one time we did a cereal social called Low Fat, where we literally set up a cereal bar inside of switch yards, invited people to come out and have their favorite cereals. (laughs) Yep. Oh my gosh. How do I find out about mm-hmm. those things for next time? Well, you know, as the world starts opening back up, I'll be putting stuff out there on my Instagram and just kind of uh, hoping people come out and experience the, the beauty of being a child again, because we all need play. Muralist and illustrator George F. Baker III, aka GFB3. His latest mural, Jewel of the City, just went up in Adair Park, too, and keep your eyes open for his other murals on buildings and walls throughout Atlanta. You can learn more about GFB3 on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Wrapping up our theme of home today, often hidden away in the attics, garages, and basements of our homes are physical objects that we aren't quite ready to let go of. Sentimental things that we think we may want to revisit one day. Well, what if we stopped thinking about those things as objects and started thinking about them as stories waiting to be shared? That's the theory behind Max Paxton's PBS show Legacy List. And earlier this year, the decluttering expert joined City Lights executive producer and host Lois Reitzis to talk about how he started learning the psychology behind our attachment to objects. Well, I jokingly say I failed at everything else. But uh, the truth is, my, I lost my dad, my stepdad, and both my grandfathers all died in, in one year when I was a kid. Oh, how horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all, you know, it wasn't like a tragic bar fight or anything. It's just, just bad timing. And um, I had four houses to clean out and I was a 24 year old kid. And I remember just going through the house. I was grieving. I was sad. It was 21 years ago. And uh, I was just lost as a person. And I remember thinking, this is awful. And my grandfather had always said to me, if something's really awful, do it as a business because people will pay you to do it. <laughs> and man, he was right. What I didn't know is I would fall in love with the people and the stories. Uh, and that's really what distinguishes you from other shows. You did work on Hoarders. I did. 12 seasons I worked on Hoarders. I say it's the Mount Everest of decluttering. You know I can <laughs> clean a mess that big, but most people don't need me to. Okay. For those who may not be familiar with Antiques Roadshow and finding your roots, although we'd like to think that most of our listeners are because NPR and PBS go hand in hand, how would you describe Legacy List? Well, the way you just implied it, it's a good mix of Antiques Roadshow and finding your roots. And I'm honored when people say that I'm honored to even be included with those two shows. But what we're doing is we're finding the items in your home and we share the really fond stories of your loved ones. And I think the difference is we purposefully don't talk about the financial value. We only want to know the emotional value. If this was your grandfather's, tell me about your grandfather. If this ring was your grandmother's, tell me about your grandma. I want to know the story. I don't care what it's worth. Who are the other experts on this show? And what are their specialties? Our crew is kind of a unique crew. They're, they're friends from my past. You know, I 
I've been on TV helping people for about 10 years now, but I've been doing it in real life for 20. And so these are people that I took from the real world. Mike Kelleher is really my pop culture expert, and he knows everything from, gosh, Pokemon cards to baseball cards to stamps to coins. I met him selling, he was selling antique Christmas sweaters out of his van. <laughs> and when I met him, I was like, what are you doing? He goes, I pick them up at at uh, flea markets all around the country. And then I sell them the month of December. And I was like, you just met the one guy in the world that you need to meet to do this. And we've been working together for 10 years. So he's really just the stuff you don't think about. Avi Hopkins uh, is a good friend. We actually ran track against each other in high school, believe it or not. He's a community uh, activist and organizer in in Richmond, Virginia, and, and worked for me for many years. But he's kind of our military and faith expert, believe it or not in African-American history. And so we, that's actually new history when you think about it. There's, you know, it's less than a hundred years, a lot of the artifacts attached to African-American history. And so he's, and, but he's also a military school guy. <laughs> he played football at VMI. And then Jamie is our clothes and really fashion expert. And believe it or not, we find a lot of clothes when we're helping people downsize. Oh, I'm not surprised at all. When you watch the show, you forget that it's really a show about downsizing. It was supposed to be a show about watching 65 plus people make that final decision of, you know, they're going to move out of the house they've been in for 30 to 50 years. And we, it kind of accidentally became a show about history. Really. I just, I love helping people clean out their attics and I know, and I hear the great stories. And a lot of times the history that we, we didn't really anticipate this, every family has an amazing history. And so we just get lost in the stories of life and stuff. And we forget that people are moving. Well, what are the qualifications for each of the families to appear on this show? Qualifications, they need to be willing. That's number one. And when, you know, we're on season two, getting ready for season three, we're actually casting for season three now. For me, it's really about diversity, obviously, number one right now. We don't need to hear any more stories about the Civil War. We've covered that. Uh, We really want to hear stories that you just wouldn't know. The first episode, we had a lady that, we we had a 44-star flag in her attic. And I said, well, how did you get it? She goes, well, my, my grandfather got it. I don't know how he got it. So we had to go find out that history. It turns out he was a train conductor. He happened to be the conductor on one of the trains that drove that day that Utah became a state. It ended up being her great-grandfather, not her grandfather. And he just the, the, the only assumption we can come up with is that the flag was on the train. And he thought, wow, I'll take it. <laughs> and Because there was no flag stores back then. And so for us, it's just someone that's curious and willing we obviously like characters. The beauty of working with 70 and 80 year olds is their filter is gone and they tell us really great, amazing stories. Well, how do they apply to be on the show? I do a lot of, you know, I work with AARP, I'll work with Leading Age, which is a senior living community organization. Now people just watch it and they go on our website. They go to mylegacylist.com and they apply. It's usually like the oldest adult daughter or the oldest adult granddaughter. And they're typically calling us and saying, man, you got to feature my grandma or you got to feature my grandpa. Or they'll call and just say, hey, I got this one item. I don't know what it is. And we start to dig a little bit and we just get curious. And it's really fun. Even the casting. I mean, not every family gets to be on the show, but I get to interview a lot of families that never make the show. But they, you know, we say, oh, hey, I don't you're not going to make the show. But I know exactly what that silver is. And your grandmother would have had to have gotten it in England at this time frame. And then that helps them with their genealogical research or just their, you know, helps them get started. And that's, that's really fun. But for us, it's, you don't need to be famous. We just want you to be curious and open and willing to tell stories. Matt, you're talking about the fun. It must also be challenging to help people sort through their personal and emotionally valuable items. How do you help these individuals provide clarity as to what they should keep and what they should get rid of? That's one of my favorite questions. I think that's where my experience on hoarders really helped because I can tell you that the bad ending to that story, it all gets thrown away, you know? And so I help people really narrow in on their, and that's why we call it legacy list to say, what you know, what are the five, six things that really matter in your life? What are the, you know, if your house catches on fire, you got two minutes. What are you going to grab? And that's such a morbid way to say it. But we just really try to focus on the positive. And, and that's one thing I love about this show is it's super positive. It's not 
negative. There's no drama. We just want to tell the good stories. And so we don't start in the attic because the attic and the basement and the garage is where you put things you don't want to address. And it's usually because something bad has happened, a lot, you know, a loss or death or, or, or divorce or something bad. And so what we typically do is we'll, we'll start somewhere fun and positive and we get humor going, but then we do when, when we know the person's ready, we, we head into the attic and we face the fears of those, those items, because so many times we put it up there because we want to avoid it. And we just say, Hey, let's not avoid it. We got, you know, and if we have to bring a therapist, we bring a therapist, but we try to just have fun and we bring family involved and we, and we get it to be a really positive thing. And I think people at the end of the day, believe it or not, being a good listener is really the most effective tool. We'll start conversations. Like I'll say, Hey, here's a picture of you when you're 18. And I see that that is not your husband. Who is that man you're with, right? And then everybody starts laughing. And they're like, oh, that's Fernando. You know, and they all start laughing. <laughs> and so I get people telling good stories. And and that's just the way to start this process. And then, uh, and usually it just kind of rolls out from there. But you have to listen. You have to be willing to listen. And whether you're on a TV show or you're in the real life on your own at home, you've got to invest the time to hear these stories and to share them. Well, you mentioned not going into the attic, the basement, or the garage first off. I think that what overwhelms me is that things I have not addressed are unmade decisions. Listening to you talk, I am reminded that I have boxes of photographs from my mom who passed away 11 years ago and my mother-in-law who passed away eight years ago. And it's painful to look at those, but I am not proud of the fact, Matt, that I have these boxes effectively screaming at me. You're setting me up for my favorite quote which is give yourself some grace. When you put those boxes there, you needed to leave them there. Now you don't need them there. You've grown. And that sounds so cheesy, but they're stepping stones. I really love that. Our attic is a stepping stone when you think about it this way. When we put the items there, we weren't ready to address those feelings. And so it was safe place to put them there for the same reasons you just said it. But the guilt is something you can let go. You don't need to feel guilty about it. It's just now, it's, it's, it's time, and now you're in a place that you can go through them. One technique is to, I, you, I mean, you hit the hardest thing. Boxes of pictures from my mother. I don't care if you're 15, 50, or 100. That's a really, really tough relationship in a good way. And you feel, we all feel guilty. Oh, my mom gets me. You know, I, my mom's 72. We're really good friends, but I still feel really guilty when I let my mom down, right? In anything. And all my clients feel that way, no matter where they are in life. I'd be like, well, how would your mom feel about this? And she goes, oh, my mom died in 73. And I'm like, well, do you think she'd be upset about it? And the lady goes, yes, she would. <laughs> and she's, you know, and so we still, I think we forget our relationships still continue after someone's deceased. And so that's where that guilt's from. But I say, give yourself a little grace, man. You, you had to leave it there for a while. And, and sometimes, I mean, I just moved myself and I was going through stuff with my dad's that he left me 20 years ago. And I just wasn't ready to go through them yet. Well, I appreciate that kind advice. It's very sympathetic. What piece of advice would you give someone about to downsize or declutter? So I got a couple here. First one is take your time. It's really important not to rush through it because I really need you to share the stories. It's a lot. I mean, one thing I've learned doing this for 20 years, when you tell the story, people are more willing to either let go of the item or believe it or not, some generations now want that item. I think many of us are under the impression that our grandkids don't want our stuff. And that's not true. They don't know the full story behind it. They don't know the trials and tribulations and they don't, I mean, like I think about the things my grandmother went without during the war and how she saved and worked hard. And if I knew the full story, when I did find out the full stories, it was like, oh yeah, I really want that item. And as a kid, I, I didn't care about those things. So I, I tell people, share those stories and you need to have an audience. So don't do this by yourself. 
you need to find it. You can do it on Zoom. You don't have to do it in person. I've had a lot of families that I've found out after watching the show, they started doing legacy list Zoom nights, which is grandma or grandpa would take an item, two or three items, and then all the kids get around on Zoom and they tell the stories of those items in their family archives. And I, I mean, that costs nothing other than time. And I just think it's really important to share those stories because I've seen hundreds of families that come up to me and they say, ah, oh, I really wanted to record my mom's stories, but she passed before we got them. And you've probably got in that box of pictures that you just mentioned, how many of those stories go away when your mom passed away? Yeah. And so that's why I say, like, write the stories down. That's the, that's the, the other one. Like, if you are the person that holds those stories, go through the pictures and just either tell the story into a into your phone or into, an, you know, some kind of recording device or even write down the names. Because a lot of us, once we pass away, those stories are gone. Do it one hour. That's more than you did yesterday. And I think that's a good, you do one hour a week and eventually, you know, you'll be through that box. And I, and it, I think it does let go of that guilt that you talk about. So many of us have this, it, it's a very generational thing, but so many of us carry this guilt of going through our stuff and you could do an hour a week right now. That's doable. Matt, you are not just a decluttering expert. You are a family therapist <laughs> and a philosopher. And I think it has just been a joy to talk with you. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be on your show. Decluttering expert and host of PBS's Legacy List, Max Paxton, speaking with City Lights executive producer and host, Lois Reitzes. Legacy List airs on ATL PBA Wednesdays at 5 p.m. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear what's in store for the future of Atlanta's historic Highland Inn and Ballroom. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Our producer is Summer Evans and Shelly Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes. Follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or follow Lois on Twitter at Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.